Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to SCOTUS 101. It's been another busy week at the court. We've got orders, denials, dissents, court gossip. We've got it all this week. We certainly do. So let's start off talking about grants. Last week, the court agreed to hear five cases. Notable among them was Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, which involves a public high school football coach who lost his job after kneeling and quietly saying a prayer by himself at midfield after a football game ended. I'm glad the courts agreed to hear that one, GC. It's a a very important case. There are also two notable denials the court issued uh, within the past week. The first is in a case called Trustees of the New Life in Christ Church versus the city of Fredericksburg, Virginia. The church in this case saw a tax exemption under state law for a home occupied by two individuals it deemed to be ministers. The city, though, denied the tax exemption, claiming, as Justice Gorsuch put in his dissent from the denial, that the church, quote, misunderstands who qualifies as a minister in its own faith tradition, and that a church's religious rules are subject to verification by government officials. Justice Gorsuch was rightly horrified by this position, as am I, and said, quote, this case may be a small one, and one can hope that the error here is so obvious it is unlikely to be repeated any time soon, but I would correct it. Bureaucratic efforts to subject religious beliefs to verification have no place in a free country. The next up is Trump versus Thompson. This uh, involves former President Trump's effort to block the release of certain materials from his presidency by invoking executive privilege. The Biden administration has okayed the release, but Trump disagreed and went to court. The D.C. Circuit declined to halt the release, and the court also declined to intervene. Only Justice Thomas would have granted the application, halting the release while the court considered the case. Justice Kavanaugh wrote separately to make clear that the D.C. Circuit's statements about whether and when a former president may invoke executive privilege were dicta and not binding in future cases. There were three oral arguments the court heard this past week, uh, which are worth briefly mentioning. First is the Shirtliff v. Boston argument. Matt Staver of Liberty Council argued on behalf of the petitioner, who is challenging Boston officials' refusal to fly a Christian flag outside of Boston City Hall, despite allowing over 284 other flags to fly there. While the case certainly has religious liberty undertones, at its core it's an important free speech case, especially surrounding the extent and scope of the government speech doctrine. Next is FEC versus Cruz. Chuck Cooper at Cooper & Kirk argued the case on behalf of Senator Cruz. And GC, I don't know if you recall, but Chuck actually talked about this case when I interviewed him uh, several weeks ago on the show. I sure do. Yeah, it's a great interview because of Chuck, not because of me, of course. (laughs) Uh, But this case involved a First Amendment challenge to the FEC's statutory and regulatory scheme surrounding certain campaign contributions and reimbursements. Finally is the case of Concepcion v. United States. Luke McLeod at Williams & Connolly, in his inaugural appearance before the court, argued the case for Mr. Concepcion. The case seeks to clarify what information a district court can consider when resentencing a defendant under certain provisions of the recently passed First Step Act. And that brings us to our one opinion this week, and it is Hemphill versus New York. 
The court held that a criminal defendant does not waive his Sixth Amendment right to confront a witness against him merely by making relevant, in the defendant's argument, that witness's testimonial hearsay. So in this case, New York prosecuted Hemphill for the murder of a child, but it had previously prosecuted someone else for the same murder. New DNA evidence later on pointed to Hemphill. When it prosecuted the earlier man, Morris, it had offered him a plea deal where it would drop the murder charge if he pleaded guilty to illegally possessing a revolver that was not used in the murder. When Hempel was later prosecuted, he blamed Morris for the murder and suggested that Morris's revolver had been used in the murder. Now, to rebut that argument, the state sought to introduce part of Morris's plea allocation, and the trial court admitted it because Morris was out of the country and couldn't be brought into court. Hempel argued that this violated his right to confront the witness, and the Supreme Court agreed. It held that merely making hearsay relevant is not enough to waive the right to confrontation. Justice Thomas was the lone dissenter on the basis that Hempel hadn't adequately raised the issue in the state appellate courts, so the Supreme Court lacked jurisdiction. Now, we're not TMZ by any stretch of the imagination, but there <laughs> has been some interesting back and forth about the behind-the-scenes working of the court this past week. Uh, some of you may have seen Nina Totenberg of NPR released an article that implied Justice Gorsuch would not wear a mask despite being asked to by Chief Justice John Roberts in order to make Justice Sonia Sotomayor more comfortable being on the bench during arguments. Totenberg reported, and I'm quoting here, Sotomayor did not feel safe in close proximity to people who were unmasked. Chief Justice John Roberts, understanding that, in some form, asked the other justices to mask up. And of course, Zach, uh, Nina Totenberg's story was all attributed anonymously. Well, uh, of course, GC. And what's really interesting is that after NPR published this story, the chief justice released a statement saying, I did not request Justice Gorsuch or any other justice to wear a mask on the bench. And Sotomayor and Gorsuch even released a joint statement saying, reporting that Justice Sotomayor asked Justice Gorsuch to wear a mask surprised us. It is false. While we may sometimes disagree about the law, we are warm colleagues and friends. NPR, though, is apparently standing by Totenberg's initial report. Totenberg also made a statement a couple weeks ago about the OSHA vaccine mandate cases where she suggested that the court had to rule in OSHA's favor because it had a mask mandate in its building and all of the justices were vaccinated. And it left me wondering... If a Supreme Court reporter for a major news outlet can't appreciate a basic factual distinction uh, and legal arguments, then heaven help lay people trying to understand the legal news. Well, it sounds like a good reason for them to tune in to uh, SCOTUS 101, GC. <laughs> now for our interview with Judge Nalbandian. We're pleased to be joined today by Judge John Nalbandian, who currently serves on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Judge, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to be here today. So before we dive into some specifics about your career, I want to ask you kind of the 40,000-foot question. What made you want to become a lawyer? It's probably a similar answer that you'll get from others, but when I was in, um, when I was in college, um, I, actually didn't, I actually didn't really want to be a lawyer. It wasn't something that was kind of on my, on my radar I was studying finance, actually, and, and uh, I was uh, all set to actually, I wanted to be an investment banker. But I started taking some classes, political science classes, and um, became really interested, you know, in kind of legal theory and legal issues. 
And, uh, you know, at some point my senior year, I guess, or around between junior and senior year, I, I, I took the LSAT and thought maybe being a lawyer would be a, be a career that I would enjoy. I, I really wanted, I, I was really thinking about something that would kind of keep me engaged uh, in terms of kind of thinking and writing and, and doing a lot of that sure. kind of work. And, um, you know, I was, I was really focused on numbers. I guess early on in my life, I loved math and and and, and figuring out math problems and and that kind of thing. But um, and and there is crossover, honestly. Kind of the logical thinking is is very helpful for a lawyer, I thought, and, and for a judge. But right, you know, that's that's kind of how I got how I got to it. Um, there are no lawyers in my family, so I didn't really know what it was it was going to be like. But um, you know, it 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 kind of worked out in the end, I think. Absolutely. Now, Judge, I saw that your mother was born in a Japanese-American internment camp during World War II. And I was wondering, did she or your grandparents ever talk to you about their experiences there? And if so, did that have any impact on your decision to become a lawyer? Yeah, so my mom, so she was born in 1944. So she had no real memories of of camp. Uh, My grandmother used to tell stories or, or talk about about camp sometimes kind of the way grandparents do they just kind of talk about their lives and uh, sure. not not really in a formal sense like you know here's what it was like but I would catch snippets every now and then and, and she was very she was about the happiest person I've ever known I mean she did, mm. really didn't have a negative word to say about anything or anybody so in some weird way camp was um, you know, she would just say it was just part of what she had gone through. And there were some, you know, memories, obviously my mother was born at, you know, during that time. And, and my aunt, um, my aunt, who's a little bit older, um, you know, she has a few memories. She was young, but, um, you know, I never really thought it, it didn't really have an impact on my kind of decision to be a lawyer, but, um, you know, it's it's just one of those one of those points in history. And obviously, when we read the the Korematsu case in law school, I, you know, it, right. I thought about it a little bit at that point. Now, speaking of of law school, I know you attended the University of Virginia, and while you were there, you served as the managing editor of the Law Review. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your experience at UVA and your experience on the the Law Review, and if if you have any special memories of that time? Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, law school for me, I enjoyed law school. Um, I enjoyed the classes. Uh, my classmates were great. My professors were great. Virginia's got a reputation, I think, as being kind of a a more relaxed atmosphere, I guess, for, for law school uh, compared to some of the other top, top places. I, and I think that was true. I mean, look, everybody's kind of a type A personality. So when you get all those people together, there's going to be some... <laughs> kind of intensity but yeah i mean i the time i remember i do remember my time on the law review and i enjoyed that but it was it gets very hectic you know when you're a 1l when you're a first year law student and you mainly focused on class and by the time you get to your second year you're focused on class but you're focused on getting a job and working on a journal and getting involved in organizations and it was a very 
I remember a very hectic time and the, and the managing editor um, of, of our law review was mostly, I mean, a lot of it was really a business kind of running the, the business of the law review, which kind of made sense given my background. And uh, sure. so, um, yeah, that was, uh, it was, it was a challenging time, but it was fun. And, and obviously the, the, the people that I served with on the law review, they're, they're still my friends and, um, you know, we keep in touch a little bit, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I have, I have fond memories of law school. And as I get farther removed from law school, I think they get even better. (laughs) So sure. (laughs) You forget, you forget about some of those, uh, the stressful times. (laughs) Now, after law school, you clerked for judge Jerry Smith on the fifth circuit. And we recently had another Judge Smith clerk on not too long ago, Professor Todd Zawicki, and he regaled us with a few <laughs> Judge Smith stories. Uh, so I was wondering, uh, do you have any uh, Judge Smith stories uh, you'd like to share with us? Well, first of all, Todd – so Todd was a year ahead of me at UBA. And okay. uh, I actually – I actually took over Todd's apartment in Houston. <laughs> I remember <laughs> Todd, I talked to Todd. And was it a said, nice, it was, was it a not nice a great, it was, it was okay. It was okay. <laughs> I, I'll say that. And, and we had this kind of uh, rent-a-center furniture and it was, uh, you know, look, I was, I had just gotten married. I, my wife and I lived apart that first year, that year of my courtship. She was working in DC and I was in Houston and I, um, you know, I would take, uh, trips back to DC, obviously to see my wife. And, and also I was looking for a job. Um, and judge Smith, the one I love judge Smith. I, I just, he is my, you know, judicial hero and, and a person that I've tried to emulate. He was very, um, understanding about my situation. And, um, he's, you know, he's got this libertarian streak and he was very, permissive in sen- in the sense of t- time that I wanted to take off, um, you know, as long as you were kind of getting your work done. And, and I worked pretty hard, honestly, when I was, when I was in the office. And so I think he sure. understood that. And uh, I really appreciated that. And I appreciate that to this day. And some of the things that he did, you know, I know he's famous for not having a dress code, and I don't really have one, frankly, in my office either, um, other than other than we're, when when we're in court, obviously. But um, right, yeah, I mean that 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 experience was um, was great, and you know, I remember, I, I do remember one time we were uh, we sat and so you sit in New Orleans on the Fifth Circuit, and that's mm-hmm. a great a great city to to kind of be in. And, um, I remember one, we were there on Halloween night one night and I, I remember the judge actually, we used to stay at the Royal Sonesta hotel on Bourbon street. That was the traditional kind of fifth circuit hotel where the, where the judges sure. used to stay. And then they kind of, some of them have moved out of there. But, um, I remember the judge requested a room on Bourbon street on Halloween and we all gathered and went out <laughs> on the balcony to enjoy the festivities and, and that was um, that was a really fun time. But yeah, I I I, I, um, I really enjoyed that courtship, and it really does uh, it really does kind of it, it it has had some impact at least on the way that I I try to run my chambers as well. Sure. 
Now, other than Judge Smith, are there any other mentors in your career who have helped kind of mold you as a lawyer and as a, as a judge uh, now? Um, you know, I, there have been a number of lawyers. I mean, obviously, I was in private practice from the time I clerked until the time I became a judge. So I've had a number of lawyers through the years that have helped me. And um, obviously, I wouldn't be where I am today without their help partners at my old law firms. I, Judge Katsis on the D.C. Circuit really helped me. He was, it's it's hard to say he's, I, I mean, he's a mentor. I mean, he's only a few years older than I am. So it's a little bit of a, it's it's kind of odd. But, you know, when you're a first year associate or a second year associate, the, the person who's a mid-level associate is kind of light years away from you in some ways, sure. you know, in terms of their <laughs> sure. experience and how they things. But I learned a lot from Greg. You know, eventually he became the deputy White House counsel uh, in the Trump administration under Don McGahn and had a lot of influence, I think, in, you know, judicial nominations and picks. So that that became a, helpful for me um, down the road as well. But um, he's uh, I don't know if you've had him on, but but he's a fantastic writer and a great legal thinker a great legal mind. Um, and then, you know, when I moved to Taft, there have been, there were several partners that, that really kind of helped, help my career. And so, you know, that's kind of that, that road in terms of judges, sure. and, you know, obviously judge Smith, I think that, you know, any judge that you clerk for is going to have a huge impact, uh, on your life and, and how you approach legal problems. Um, and other than that, I just try to, you know, digest as much kind of legal writing and, and analysis as I can to try to learn what I can. Now, you mentioned out you've been in private practice uh, since after you clerked until you took the bench. And I know you spent uh, several years working in Jones Day, Day in Washington, D.C., and then you eventually moved back to Kentucky and began practicing in Cincinnati. Uh, so what made you want to move back to Kentucky, begin practicing in Cincinnati? And how would your experiences uh, practicing in D.C. and Cincinnati, uh, how would those compare? Yeah, I mean, it was really a family decision. My wife and I were starting a family, and obviously my son was born in, um, I think it was in 99, it was April of 99, and we were in D.C., and we decided to um, move closer to family. You know, my wife was working at the Department of Justice at the time, and I was at Jones Day. You know, we had a we had a nice house in Arlington. I mean, it wasn't a big house, but it was uh, but it was a sure. great place. And and but we decided to move closer to family. And her family, she grew up here in northern Kentucky, and so uh, we moved closer to her to her family. And and I think that was you know obviously that was a great decision. And my daughter was was born soon thereafter, and so that was the decision. The the practice I worked at the. Jones Day in D.C., and then I moved over to the Taft Law Firm here in here in Cincinnati. You know, Taft was a smaller place, obviously a smaller shop than, than Jones Day. Taft has gotten much bigger, got much bigger over the time that I was there and, and even now since I've left. You know, the practice is, a, is similar in the sense that, you know, law firms kind of operate the same way. They're partners and associates and, and uh, right. you kind of staff cases the same way. The cases at Jones State were bigger in, in the sense that, you know, you have huge teams of lawyers um, and, and things that people say about other like 
regional firms, I guess you would say that you don't have those mega mega cases with twenty you know people on it. And 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 I I liked my experience at Taft. I mean, I I did appellate practice. Um, that was what I had started doing at Jones Day, and I kind of kept that sure. practice going when I moved here. And you know, worked on a lot of really interesting cases. Um, I always tell people that you know Jones Day, you're working on cases that you probably read about in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and whatever. Here, right. um, maybe not as much of that, but certainly cases that are very important for the region. Um, a lot of important clients that are that are regional players, I guess, and, and some na- some nationally. I mean, Taft did a had a has a has a really good reputation as kind of a firm that kind of punched above its weight, I guess you would say. But I was sure. fortunate to land in the situation I did here. Now, the Taft firm in Cincinnati is that any uh, relation or have any connection with? Uh... President William Howard Taft? Yeah, so the Taft is Robert A. Taft, um, his son and senator from Ohio. Um, that's the Taft in the in the name. But yeah, the Taft name in Cincinnati is a is a well known name, obviously, as as people know. But um, President sure. Taft's um, birthplace is here in town, and then his sons and and others went went on to do great things in their own right. Excellent. Now, I did want to ask you one thing I noticed is that in 2007, Kentucky's governor appointed you to be a special justice of the Kentucky Supreme Court. Huh. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about what a special justice is in Kentucky and what that experience was, was like? Yeah, yeah. So it turned out to be not that big a deal, um, although it can be. Uh, it's it's interesting when ju- when justices are recused on the Kentucky Supreme Court, at least back then, they don't they replace them. Obviously, so so a judge can't sit on a case usually because right. they were a court of appeals judge and then are now recused because they you know sat on the case or something. In a lot of states, in Ohio, for example, the chief justice would just appoint a, a different court of appeals judge to take the place of the Supreme Court justice. In Kentucky, the governor makes the appointment. And the tradition, I don't know whether it has to be this way, has been to put lawyers on instead wow. <laughs> of court of appeals judges. And so a guy named Andy Barr was the governor's counsel, and Andy is now a congressman um, representing the 6th District in Kentucky. But Andy called me and said, hey, can you, uh, can you be, <laughs> be a special justice? We have a, we have a case, we have some cases that we have recusals on. Turned out that I didn't, um, it was at the cert stage, and so I was on several cases, but we ended up just denying cert, so there was nothing exciting. Like, I didn't mm. get to hear a case, you know, on the bench. I have known people, however, sure. that have done that. They got on, they were appointed, they granted the case, and then they got to go and sit with the justices. And he, one of wow. them, in one case, so he wrote an opinion um, because it was an wow. area that he knew about <laughs> and the, the justices were, were happy to have him do it. So it's an, it's a weird system. It's interesting. Um, it was a good experience for me just to kind of, Talked to the Chief Justice a little bit, Chief Justice Lambert at the time, and um, but yeah, that was it. And I, I, uh, I think I got a certificate out of it on, on I can <laughs> sitting somewhere that I can frame at some point. But yeah, 
did you have to uh, buy a, a judicial robe did, uh, for I, any of those activities? I, I did not. I did not have to do that. I did. Um, it's funny when I started on this court, I was, I didn't know anything about the robe. Like, you know, I thought maybe they gave you the robe and they said, no, <laughs> you, you, you have to buy that. I'm like, Oh, okay. Like how much, I don't even, how much are they? What are, who, where do I go? Is this a, Turns out that the people that make church choir robes and graduation robes also make judicial robes. So that's uh... now, and I'm kind of curious myself. Did you have to go for a fitting? Did you have to be measured? Are they custom made? <laughs> How does that that process I work? I think that they took some. Yes, I think there were some. I don't know that it was kind of bespoke, but they did. I think there were some. There were some measurements that had to be taken to to kind of get that done. But yeah, that was, it was funny. It was the first sitting I ever had. Of course I didn't have any, but it turned out the court had some kind of hand-me-downs laying around. So they, they uh. found me one that could fit me and uh, there I was. That was my first case. The first thing I ever did was sat on an odd bonk. I actually got on the court oh, wow. and yeah, it was okay. Here we go. I'm like, okay, good. Excellent. I did want to ask you about something else, Judge. I noticed that from 2010 to 2018, you were a board member of an organization called the State Justice Institute. Uh, can you tell us about you know, the State Justice Institute and what your experience was like uh, sure. on the board? Yeah, no, and I, I am glad you asked me about that because I always love promoting the State Justice Institute. It's a board. It's a federal board. Um, it's It's mostly made up of state judges, state Supreme Court justices, and judges, so five or so. And then um, there are at-large members that are appointed, and you have to be confirmed by the Senate, actually. And the board basically makes grants of federal money to state court systems. Um, It's the only board, really, it's the only way that state courts get direct federal money aside from some Department of Justice money. It's not a very big board um, in, in terms of budget. I think our budget was $6 million or something, and that's with an M. And when you think about the size of the federal government, that's right. pretty small. In fact, I think it may be the smallest kind of agency board in the in the federal government. There's one that deals with, I think, marine animals that may be smaller, that, according to the director. Okay. But we would pick out priority investment areas, problems that were happening, challenges that state court systems were finding that were having. For example, when I was there, a lot of state courts, and they still are, were struggling with um, litigants who were self-represented, didn't have lawyers, uh, litigants who English was not their first language. And sometimes you combine the two of them and it becomes a real challenge. So we would pay, we would State courts would come with proposals and say, hey, we would like to set up an interpreter program uh, to help our limited English litigants, you know, uh, um, and so that we we can't have an interpreter in every courtroom, but we would like to set up a virtual program where somebody can can be in a clearinghouse and can help litigants all over the state or all over the country. And so they would say, we have you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars for this. Can you match? Will you make us a grant match that? And we would. And so what we would do is try then to leverage that. And the whole idea is that if a state 
Minnesota, for example, had uh, some innovative programs on guardianships, like guardianships and elder law issues were very big. And if it becomes a model program or successful, we try to encourage other states that face similar problems to, you know, to, to model after that. So, yeah, we had a lot of interesting issues. You know, 95% of all litigation in this country takes place in state court. It's probably higher than that, actually. So most people, their kind of interaction with a court system is going to be with a state court and not a federal court. Um, so just it was sure. really important work, and I, I really enjoyed being on that board. I really did. Excellent. Now, I know a little bit earlier in the interview, you said that Judge Smith, there were some things that he did in his chambers that you've adopted in your chambers. Uh so I guess my question is, what are some of those things? And do you have any traditions that you're trying to establish with your own clerks? Well, we, t- we try to wear pink on Wednesday for sure as an homage to Mean Girls. But, um, <laughs> you know, other than that, when, I'm serious. No, I, 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 I'll, I'll wear, I usually wear pink on Wednesday and the clerks have, will adopt that too. So, um, Is but, uh, um, Mean Girls a favorite movie? <laughs> Of yeah, I love that movie. Yeah, no, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a classic. You know, the one main thing that Judge Smith taught me, or, or his, maybe not a tradition, but just kind of as a work practice. I mean, he always had an open door, and you know, I, I, I think most judges do try to have. Look, there are times when you just need to kind of crank some work out and don't want to be disturbed. But for the most part, I, I try to be accessible uh, to my clerks the way that Judge Smith was. I mean, there was, you know, if I needed to walk in and talk to him about a problem, he was there and available. And I try to I try to do that and encourage my clerks to do that. I think that's the way you kind of learn and, and figure legal problems out when you kind of talk through things. Um, and so I've tried to, I've definitely tried to continue that. Now, Judge, I have a final question for you. It's one we ask all of our guests on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Wow. That's, um, <laughs> there's a lot to pick from. I think I would um, – I, I, I suspect a lot of people take John Marshall or Oliver, Oliver Wendell Holmes or Joseph Story or a lot of great names. I actually think I would – want to talk to George Sutherland. Justice Sutherland, he was one of the four horsemen, which is kind of a, I suppose, a, a pejorative now, but was a fascinating guy. He had, was born in England and, and kind of grew up in Utah, served in the, served in the House, served in the Senate. But I really, he wrote a, a lot of interesting opinions. He's thought to be very conservative, but he wrote like Humphrey's executor, um, the zoning case, village of Euclid, um, the Scottsboro case from Alabama, Scottsboro boys case from Alabama, Powell versus Alabama. But also, you know, for, for someone who's an originalist and, and is interested in originalism, uh, Justice Sutherland wrote a dissent in the Blaisdell case, the contract clause case that is one of the early examples of kind of using original public meaning and kind of fixed meaning. 
So I, you know, I, I would love to sit down and talk to him a little bit. It's, it's always interesting when you talk about a historical conversation, because what you'd like to do is also tell them like, here's what's happened. Like, what do you think of, sure. you know, admit the administrative state, you know, the new, what happened after the new deal delegation doctrine, commerce clause, you know, are you surprised right. at what happened? Are you shocked? Are you um, happy? Are you whatever? I that I just think that those right. would be, it would be fascinating to sit down with historical figures and see if, if what happened was kind of, Oh, you know, this is, what came to pass is what they thought or, or, or not. But yeah, Justice Sutherland, I think would be an interesting one to sit down, interesting person to sit down with. Excellent. Well, Judge Nalbandian, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show with us today. I've enjoyed our conversation and we'd love to have you back on the program again in the future. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks, Zach. I appreciate it. And thanks for having me. GC, the reporting this week got me thinking about leaks and past instances where there have been reports coming out of the court that give a behind-the-scenes look into its inner workings, so I thought we could talk about some of those today for trivia. Interesting. All right, first up, which justice, as part of his first day onboarding process for new law clerks, allegedly told them, if I'd ever discover that you have betrayed the confidence of what goes on in these chambers, I will do everything in my power to ruin your career? You know, that sounds very much like uh, the sort of faux sternness for which Justice Scalia was so famous. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, <laughs> this came out in a Washington Post article a few years ago, and the former clerk who was talking to the Post said that Justice Scalia didn't say it in a mean way, but in a way that communicated he meant business. Uh, still, the former clerk said that the message was received <laughs> loud and clear, and uh, to his knowledge, no leaks ever came out of Justice Scalia's chambers. Well done, GC. You're off to a, a great start. All right. Now, not all law clerks apparently got Justice Scalia's memo. In fact, there was a scandal in the early 1900s where a law clerk was alleged to have leaked confidential information from the court to individuals on Wall Street. Do you know who this law clerk leaker was? Interesting. No, I, I don't. Well, it's not surprising. This is a lesser-known aspect of the court's history. This law clerk was someone named Ashton Embry. He was a law clerk to Justice Joseph McKenna. He left the court in 1919 to become a baker. And shortly after he resigned, the Department of Justice indicted him for sharing the court's secrets with traders. But a what's, baker, like yeah. ba bread baker. Supreme yeah, that's court right. clerk, bacon bread. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, uh, GC, if this law thing, you know, if you get tired of it, uh, maybe baking could be in your future. <laughs> Who <laughs> knows? But don't end up like Ashton Embry because uh, shortly after he resigned, as I mentioned, the DOJ indicted him uh, for sharing the court's secrets. But what's interesting is at the time, there was no explicit prohibition on insider trading like we have today. This was before the SEC or modern securities laws had been passed. So the DOJ tried to bring several creative charges against him, and his case actually went all the way up to the Supreme Court, uh, but the court declined to hear it, and the DOJ ultimately dismissed the charges. Judge John Owens has written a law review article recounting in vivid detail this ordeal. It's a fantastic read, uh, and Judge Owens also recently joined SCOTUS Blog's podcast to talk about this uh, interesting incident as well. How interesting. It really is. It's a, it's a fascinating footnote in the, the court's history. All right, next up. 
A former law clerk published a book in the late 1990s that purported to give an insider look into the inner workings of the court. It was a very controversial book at the time, with many of the sitting justices believing that this former clerk had violated or come as close to the line as possible of violating his confidentiality obligations. What is this controversial book? I remember this one. It's called Closed Chambers, although I don't remember who the clerk was who wrote it. Do you remember which justice he clerked for? Uh, no. Well, that's okay. You got the book. You're exactly right. <laughs> so you get credit for the question. Uh, it was written by Edward Lazarus, who had clerked for Justice Harry Blackman. Now, this isn't the only book, of course, that's been published uh, purporting to give a look into the inner workings of the court. Uh, there was an earlier book that was published in the late 1970s, which received similar criticism for relying on off-the-record sources that revealed a lot about the inner workings and potentially confidential information about the court. What was this earlier book, GC? Um, so there are two books that come to mind, actually, and I'm not sure about the timing. The one, well, There's one called The Brethren, mm -hmm. uh, which is by Bob Woodward, and the other one that comes to mind is called Scorpions. Uh, and it's about it's about the nine. Well, it's about FDR's court and 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 uh, how somebody once said that the Supreme Court is nine scorpions in a bottle, and it talked about how uh, vitriolic that court was. Well, you are on uh, the money, GC. The book I was thinking of was The Brethren. It was by Bob Woodward and Scott Armstrong. This came out in the late nineteen seventies, and like I said, contained a lot of off the record uh, interviews uh, that revealed a lot about the inner workings of the court. Uh, Scorpions, uh, I know that book as well. It's by Noah Feldman, and I think it came out much later, I believe sometime around uh, 2010 hmm. or 2011 or so, uh, but both very interesting reads. Now, I'll give you a bonus question, GC. Okay. Uh, unlike the earlier leaks we discussed, it wasn't a law clerk or other court employee who Bob Woodward later identified as his primary source for the brethren. It was a justice. Uh, so here's my question. Who was this leaking justice uh, that gave Bob Woodward his inside information? I think that it was Justice Stewart, actually, who is reported to have leaked on his own institution. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, Woodward revealed this fact after Stewart's death in 1985. And what's interesting is Justice Stewart's papers, which are housed at Yale for the most part, were closed to researchers until all the justices with whom he served had left the court and that didn't happen until John Paul Stevens retired in 2010. Overall, a great job at trivia today, GC. Very interesting, Zach. Thanks very much. Yeah, of course. Well, that's it for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.